ironically, this entire situation has happened during the season of Lent. For Lent is a time that is a season that is designed to remind us of our frailty, of our need for Jesus. It is a time of sacrifice and of altering our normal routines to carve out space for prayer and for the word of God. And we're all entering a period now, not of our choosing, in which we are acutely aware of our frailty, where we are aware of our need to make sacrifices, and we're aware that our schedules will be significantly disrupted. During this time in which there is so much that we are not in control of, I want us to take some time to remember that we who follow Jesus are uniquely positioned to respond with trust and courage in a way that will lead us to acting selflessly during these times. I'm not saying that those who do not follow Jesus will not exhibit courage and selflessness, nor am I saying that all who follow Jesus will uh, be courageous and selfless. What I am saying is that those who follow Jesus are uniquely positioned philosophically to respond to crises of all kinds from a position of courage and selfless sacrifice for the benefit of others. While the coronavirus may be different than anything we have faced before during our lifetimes, it is not certainly the first crisis that our nation or our world has faced. It is certainly not the first time Christians have been called to respond to crisis. In our current Lenten series, entitled Humanity Revealed, we are looking at how, from the very beginning, humanity has had a a proclivity to move away from God and to turn towards things that would destroy them. And how through Jesus, our humanity can be restored. In our first two weeks, we saw how disbelief and how hatred can destroy us. And how Jesus has modeled and showed us a different way. This morning, I want to continue in that series and to talk to you about how humanity has a proclivity to turn towards fear in the midst of crisis. And to tell you that Jesus has shown us another way. What we see from the very beginning is that Humanity has had a proclivity to turn towards fear over trust. One of the very earliest stories in our uh, Bible comes in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Abraham, the the second narrative after his life, the first of which he is introduced on the scene as this man that's received a vision and God has spoken to him and told him to go out and to leave his homeland and go to a new land which God will show him. And Abraham in a society where family was everything, left everything he knew and was familiar to go to an unknown land and to travel with his family, to travel with his livestock, and to make the many-mile journey, the many-day journey of marching and walking to a new land just because God told him to. Now, Abraham so often is referred to as this great man of faith, and he was all of that. But the very second narrative that we see in the life of Abraham comes and tells us that humanity, although we may have times where we trust, has a proclivity to turn towards fear in the midst of crisis. Abraham has left his homeland, the homeland of Ur, and he now finds himself in a new land, the Negev. And all of a sudden, a great and severe famine comes on the land. And Abraham, like anybody does when there's a crisis where food is not readily available, he finds out where food is available, yes? And he goes to Egypt, 
which seems to be a repeatable pattern in the Bible and in history that Egypt has food when others doesn't, when others do not. And Abraham takes his family to Egypt. Now, Abraham has a beautiful wife, beautiful wife. Um, I mean, I think all of us as husbands think we have beautiful wives, right? That's part of the gig. But Abraham has such a beautiful wife in his mind that he is afraid to go into a foreign land and to appear there because he is afraid that the Pharaoh of Egypt, the powerful man of that land, will snatch his wife and kill him because his wife, Sarah, which just so happens to be my wife's name as well, his wife will be taken from him by force and he will be killed. So Abraham comes up with a massively unromantic plan. Massively unromantic. Born out of fear. Where he goes to his wife and says, when we get into the land of Egypt, tell them that you are my sister so that I will be preserved and so that we may live. So that I may be preserved and so that we may live. And Sarah goes along with the plan. We're not told anything in the text about her emotional state about going on with the plan. But she goes on with the plan. And God, despite uh, Abraham's fear, despite Abraham's selfishness, um, despite his worry, he shows up and he preserves their lives. And you can read all about it. Genesis chapter 12, 10 through 20. Abraham, the man that we go to for faith, showed great, great fear in the midst of crisis because humanity has a proclivity in crisis to turn towards worry and selfishness. But what we see in the text, anytime that worry and selfishness appears on the pages of Scripture, and really anytime worry and selfishness appears in our lives, what we see is that it never, ever only affects the person who is fearful, the person who is worried, the person who is selfish. Selfishness always leaks over. Worry always leaks over. Fear always leaks over, and it hurts other people around them. From the very beginning, after Christ died and rose from the dead, Christians realized that they had been given a new pattern in Jesus that would lead them in a completely different direction. In fact, there were many factors that led to the rise of Christianity. I was taught three major factors. Of course, the first and most primary major factor that led to the rise of Christianity was that Jesus appeared on the scene, claimed to be the God-man, and then, while no one believed in him, he was killed, rose from the dead, and appeared to hundreds of people. And so the people who Jesus was, uh, the people who Jesus appeared to, the people who saw him, they went all over the world and they started to tell people what they had seen. The second factor that led to the rise of Christianity was just the simple fact that the Romans have made the roads more uh, accessible. And so the Christians who had seen Jesus could travel all over the known empire, spreading the news that Jesus died, rose from the dead, and he appeared to us. The third factor that led to the rise of Christianity was that when crisis arose in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the Christians responded to it in a way that was completely unlike the way that anyone else responded to crisis. In the website Stand to Reason, 
uh, they summarize the situation well, where they say this, Ancient societies and religions were not known for their care of the sick and dying. But, but Christians often risk their lives to care even for every life. Even for every life. And this represented a radical difference in the values that were taught by the Bible and the values that everyone else on the planet at the time held to. It was common in ancient societies, including Rome, which saw the inception and rise of Christianity, to abandon their sick and their dying. Roman religion did not teach followers to care for the helpless and vulnerable. And so, destitute families lacking any resources to help sometimes even abandoned their chronically ill family members to die. Their sick, their elderly slaves were routinely left to waste away on an island that the Romans had preserved just for that purpose. Unwanted children were often left to die of exposure if a father decided that the family couldn't afford to feed another child. And they would leave the child on the steps of a temple or in the public, uh, in the public square. Often, almost without exception, newborn babies that were defective, had some kind of child birth defect, were exposed in this way. In the third century, an epidemic swept across northern Africa, Italy, and the Western Empire, and as many as 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome at the time. The sick were abandoned in the streets, the dead left unburied. In Carthage, Christians were blamed for the disease, and the emperor ordered Christians to sacrifice to their gods to end it, and they refused. Carthage's bishop, Cyprian, encouraged instead Christians to care for the sick and the dying. They buried the dead, and they risked caring for the sick, often getting sick themselves. This was repeated other times in the early centuries of the church during epidemics. For Christianity introduced a new concern and a standard of care for sick people. Rodney Stark, who is the author of The Rise of Christianity, argues that some of the most marked growth of the church in these early centuries can be attributed to the compassion Christians showed for the sick. He is even able to track increased conversion rates during the three plagues that happened during the 2nd, 3rd, and 6th centuries, where Christians demonstrated their love for God and their biblical values, and they they offered a very attractive witness. During each of these pandemics, government officials and the wealthy fled the cities for the countryside to escape contact with those who were infected, but the Christian community remained behind transforming themselves into a force of caretaking love. Their example has been followed throughout history of the Christian church. Catholic orders were devoted to care. Mennonites in Holland and Quakers in England formed societies to improve health care. Modern medical missionaries carry on with this mission today. And so we too, who are followers of Jesus, we too carry the same philosophical groundwork that empowers us with an ability to trust in Jesus, realizing that he is fully in control, knowing that there are no guarantees in life, but that this life is not all there is to life. Our humanity restored by Jesus means that we can trust over fear. Jesus, in his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, says in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, this, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how, God clothes the grass of the field, which he is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry, saying what we shall eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has trouble of its own. <laughs> Jesus has taught us a different way. Each day has trouble of its own, but God is in control. And so we are freed from worry, and we're able to live in a new path, courage and selflessness. I want to tell you the stories of two individuals from the Bible, or two stories where individuals did this. The first story is of a trio, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had been exiled from their hometown, and now they lived in exile under Nebuchadnezzar, the evil foreign superpower uh, dictator of the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 3, has the idea to set up an idol, a huge golden idol, out in the plains. And he most likely made this idol so that it looked like him. He commands his entire empire to join, for everyone to go out and to gather in the plains and to bow and worship before the idol. He obviously anticipated that not everybody would do so, so he had also built a furnace that was near the idol. And if anybody did not bow and worship, he had commanded his soldiers to throw those individuals into the fiery furnace. Well, there were three individuals, their names were and their unusual names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three individuals stood before Nebuchadnezzar after an official had come and said that these men aren't bowing when everyone else did. There was a massive crowd. And these three individuals were brought before the emperor himself. You get the impression that they are the only three individuals that do not bow. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I will give you one more chance. And when the music plays... I will watch you, and you will bow. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I don't know if their voices in you were in unison or if they declared a spokesperson, they looked at Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, and said, the music doesn't need to play. Don't waste your breath. We will not bow. For our God is able to deliver us if you throw us into the fire and then catch this, even if he does not, we trust in him and we will not bow. And so, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fire. They are preserved and brought out. 
in Nebuchadnezzar eventually has some kind of trust in the God of Israel, and they are preserved. The second story I want to tell you is the story that comes uh, a little after this one. Uh, After the Babylonian Empire that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had lived under, there was another superpower, Persia, that took them over. And their king, um, uh, or emperor, had decided that he was upset with his wife. He was the emperor of the Persian Empire. And he decided he was going to be done with his current wife, Vashti, and he was going to choose a new wife. And so he brought in a bunch of candidates into his harem to decide which one he liked the best. To say this is not the most ideal of circumstances would be an understatement for the women in this harem. And Esther, a woman who was a Jew and who nobody nobody knew was a Jew, apparently was of extreme beauty and intelligence. And through this uh, experience of being a part of King Xerxes' harem, she won the contest and she is declared to be Xerxes' wife. Queen Esther. The king, Xerxes, has just married his queen, Esther, and he doesn't even know her nationality. She has not told him. Another man that was a part of the high, uh, the high council of King Xerxes, who had it out for the Jews, decided that he was going to use his position and his influence to influence Xerxes to commit genocide against the Jewish nation. And so Esther is faced with a decision. Esther is faced with a decision. Will I keep my national identity a secret and preserve my life? Or will I courageously and selflessly go before my king, my husband, who I don't even see all the time, only when he summons me, and will I beg for the lives of my people, the Israelites, knowing that if I do this, I could easily die. And so Esther with courage and selflessness, goes before the king. And the king hears her plea, and the king responds, and the lives of the Israelites are saved. In both of these examples, there's a positive outcome. But notice that Shadrach, that Meshach, that Abednego, that Esther, none of them knew that there would be. We could tell stories in the Bible and we could tell stories in our own life where we have times of crisis where we need to place our trust in God and we could share those stories where sometimes there is a positive outcome where the thing we hope does not happen does not happen. And we could tell stories where the thing that we hope does not happen does. These stories are not promises to you that if you follow God, nothing bad will happen. They are reminders to you to turn your what-if fears into even-if trust. Do not fear. Do not fear the one who can harm your body. For we are more than body. We are body and soul. And give your life to the trust of God, to the hands of Jesus, which will always mean a commitment to trust over fear, And trust does not just make you feel better in isolation. Trust leads to a greater expression of courage and selflessness for the benefit 
of others.